This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, and if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I'm working on some new interviews for you, but in the meantime, I thought it would be good to surface an old interview with Mark Russell from May 2019. Mark Russell is a writer of both books and comics, and he's been on the show twice. His first book, God is Disappointed in You, is a hilarious retelling of the Christian Bible, which is followed by a sequel featuring apocryphal scriptures called Apocrypha Now, which is just as good. Fans of shows like Sunday School Dropouts and the new Irreverent podcast, Go Home Bible, You're Drunk, will appreciate these books. However, as a comic book reader, it's his graphic storytelling that really grabbed my attention. His breakout book was a 12-issue run on the Flintstones for DC Comics, where he used Fred and Wilma and the other cast of characters to make incisive and impossibly sincere social satire. He continued his work with Hanna-Barbera characters with a six-issue run of Snagglepuss, with the titular character being cast as a closeted playwright during the McCarthy era. Of particular interest to evangelical listeners, though, Mark also writes the comic book Second Coming, which features Jesus Christ as the main character. In that book, Christ is sent back to Earth by God to room with Sunstar, a Superman analog, because his dad thinks it will toughen him up. Evangelicals and other fundamentalists were so worked up about the mere announcement of this book that over 200,000 people signed a petition calling for its literal cancellation, which DC Comics promptly did before a single issue was published. Thankfully for the public, it was picked up by the publisher Ahoy Comics. Volume 1 is available in trade now, and the second volume, Second Coming, Only Begotten Son, is being published in single issues right now. I had another conversation with Mark specifically about this book, which you can find in the feed. What has stuck with me from this conversation, even years later, is what Mark Russell has to say about the limitations of superhero narratives. Around the 55-minute mark, Russell says that the problem with superheroes is this sort of embedded idea that the only thing that will save the world is if the good guys are even better at violence than the villains. I'm thinking about this now, as the U.S. vaccination rate is on the rise and as the movie release schedule of Disney and other studios reasserts itself, as well as within the background of the real world and the regular mass shootings we see here in the U.S. and the atrocities we're seeing in Palestine now. I know that I'll use those stories that Disney and others publish through Marvel Studios for a sense of escape and, yes, even inspiration. And I know that I'm excited at the prospect of seeing a movie like Black Widow in the theaters. But I also know that I have to look beyond this cartoon violence and find other ways to make it more just and sustainable society. Hell, even the fictional characters themselves are reckoning with these questions in series like Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yet fiction provides a safe place for us to imagine new realities, and that's what Mark Russell excels at. I hope you get a sense of that from this interview and that you use the links in the show notes to look up some of his work. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at ExvangelicalPod. You can like the show on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ExvangelicalPod. You can also support this show and my writing directly via paid subscription to the Post-Evangelical Post, which is currently hosted on Substack at PostEvangelicalPost.com free tiers are also available. You can also support the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. This show was edited by Jake Lewis. Thank you very much, Jake. All right, everyone, let's get into it. 
Hi everyone, welcome to Extangelical. My guest this week is Mark Russell. He is the author of the book God is Disappointed in You, as well as the book Apocrypha Now, and is the author and writer of many comic books, including The Flintstones, Snagglepuss, and more recently Red Sonia. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad uh, you you agreed to come on the show. Thanks for coming on. I discovered your work a few years ago uh, when somehow your book, God is Disappointed You, came across somewhere online, and I was super happy to read it. It was really, really funny. And then a couple of years later, I learned that you were then writing comics. Um, but before we sort of get into your work, uh, where we like to sort of start on the show is just talking about your sort of initial uh, background and what your sort of first experiences with religion were like, whether that was as a child or at some other point in your life. Yeah, well, I was <clears throat> pretty much raised in a uh, evangelical church. So my uh, first experiences with religion, like genuine personal experiences, didn't really happen until I, I started sort of doubting my religion. Uh, because to me, it just felt perfectly natural. It was like mm. just part of our daily routine. Mm -hmm. It was the the water in which I swam in. So it, it didn't feel like I was actually having a religious experience. It was probably why I ultimately began challenging it. Because mm. for me, it was it was just, you know, like going to school or, you know, getting dressed in the morning. It wasn't like a, a, an experience that sort of really made me feel connected to the rest of the universe. It was just something I, I did as a matter of routine. Yeah. yeah. And, and it wasn't until I started like getting older and started like sort of needing those experiences that made me feel connected to the rest of the world or to the, the greater human experience mm -hmm. that I began sort of questioning whether or not I needed my particular religion in order to experience that. Yeah. So we can get we can often get sort of in the weeds in this show as far as you know actually talking about what sorts of denominations people were brought up in. So did you did you come up in like a non denominational sort of evangelical environment, or was there a certain tradition oh, that you were? A part we were of? we were Pentecostals, like okay. four square. Okay, and was this uh, like a, a church environment where you where you sort of your family you or your family went? Uh, on Sundays and through the week and that sort of thing. Yeah, we went uh, not only on Sundays, but usually was Wednesday evenings as well. Mm -hmm. It was not a casual thing. It was something that was woven into the fabric of our lives. Mm -hmm. And what about your school? Did you attend public school or was there a, did you attend a Christian school or homeschool or? Uh, some of both. I mean, all three actually. I, mean, okay. I, I, I homeschooled a little bit in the eighth grade. I mostly went to a Christian school uh, during elementary school through middle school, and then I went to a, a public high school. Okay, so you you hit all the bases, and yeah, yeah, I've I've seen uh, uh, education from basically all the parallax points. <laughs> and what was that? What was that like for you growing up? I mean, I I don't know whether you were self aware of of those sorts of shifts and and that experience, but in retrospect, what was that sort of like for you? Well, you know, in, in re retrospect, I think they all have kind of their own assets and problems. And mm. I think the problem with the public school education I received was that it was sort of, you know, one size fits all. So it was very easy to sort of slip through the cracks. And, you know, um, if you didn't want to take advantage of an education, you didn't have to. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas the, the Christian education, I felt, was very heavy on indoctrination and very light on sort of academic improvement. But at the same time, you did get a lot of individualized attention and you, you know, you could not really slip through the cracks because there was always people there mm. checking on you. Mm. Uh, um, and, you know, the, the, the homeschool I, I felt worked very well for me, but only because I was very self-motivated. I would, I would actually get up and do the work, but it was, but the, 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 the homeschool approach made my education, I think a little lopsided because I would, do a lot of work and, and get very far ahead in the subjects I was interested in and not so much the things I, I, I didn't care about. Oh yeah. And I think I'm still that way to this day. It's like, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I'm sort of an idiot savant. Uh, <laughs> I've really uh, read, a uh, uh, well-read and, uh, well-versed in subjects that I care about and, and probably, uh, below subpar 
in things that just don't <laughs> have any sort of meaning to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very relatable. I I sort of my parents used to call me uh one track or like OT because I would sort of get on one track and and stick to it <laughs> for right. for a long time. So that's that's And very... the, yeah, the homeschooling really sort of enabled that. Yeah. Uh what about sort of social aspects of this religious milieu you were in? Um was there uh, different Sunday schools and like youth groups. I know like in the nineties and two thousands, youth group culture was like this, this big thing. And I don't know if that was when you were going through this and if that that's your age group or not. Yeah. It was more like the eighties. Okay. Uh, but yeah, youth group was pretty big. I mean, it was where, it was where you met most of your social peers. And I think that's why they do that because the youth group is where you get the social reinforcement that your parents mm-hmm. can't give you. It's it's like you ultimately at some point uh, everybody starts being raised not by their parents but by their friends, mm. and I think that's when what when the uh, evangelical churches cracked that code and realized that that people were leaving the church because they were being raised by their their friends you know and their prom dates and not by their parents who wanted them in church. That's when the emphasis started on the youth groups. Mm-hmm. It's like well the way you, you make people afraid to leave or, you know, make, keep them interested in the church is not with the church itself. It's with the the social group, the people they care about making it difficult for them to leave those people behind. Yeah. And that's when the emphasis on youth group and surrounding people with social peers who are also uh, in the youth group and, and having your activities and your social activities sort of like center around the church mm-hmm. and the faith that's when that became really big. So it's, it's a form of totalitarianism, really. But but it was it wasn't wasn't toxic in my case. It wasn't like uh, they were going to come after you if you you know did something wrong or if you tried to leave the church. It was just sort of it was a pleasant totalitarianism. <laughs> it's like we're we're just going to make it very easy for you to stay in the church and not to question anything because you don't want to like leave all these friends behind. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's really well put. That that's the sort of way in which young people are begin to sort of in, indoctrinate themselves. <laughs> I think I've seen that sort of play out in a, a lot of different sort of sor- circumstances. And youth group is like a really, really good example of that. Yeah. And I think a lot of people in the youth group had similar sort of questions or similar sorts of doubts that I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's like, they didn't want to like make the, uh, the, the pizza sleepover is awkward. Uh, <laughs> you know, they didn't want to like yeah, those miss lock-ins. out on the, the, the trip to the Enchanted Forest. So the, <laughs> the, they they pushed those doubts to the back and went along with the uh, the program. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because there is a lot of groupthink in those circumstances, too. You know, you don't... yeah, they make it very attractive. They make it very right. comfortable. The whole like, yeah, the reason why groupthink is is a thing is because it's very it's much more comfortable than, mm. than breaking from it. Right. So you have mentioned that that a couple of times that you've you started to develop these doubts. And it was actually when you first mentioned it, you said that it it was motivated by this sense of trying to connect to something. When did when did you really start to feel those doubts? And and how did how did you experience those? Uh, Probably when I was in high school and it was largely just being exposed to people who didn't believe the same thing I did. Like, oh, there's other ways of looking at the world. And, oh, this person is not a member of my church or even my faith, mm-hmm. but they're an even better human being than I am. Yes. Yeah. So what does that say about, you know, it's like everything. It's kind of like the lies that you're told when your kid get peeled back one by one. Like, oh, you know, people who don't have this faith are lost. and They can't. This, this is what makes you a good person. It's like, well, no, I actually know a lot of good people who are, you know, not part of this faith at all. Or, you know, it's like, oh, this is the only way to heaven. And anybody who doesn't come this way is going to to burn in hell. And then you realize when you're in school, like how many people that means, how many people don't share this faith with you. You begin to wonder to yourself if you're really that lucky Mm. that you just happen to be born into the one particular faith and not only the faith, but the one sort of branch of that faith, because I'm, right. I'm pretty sure we all thought that Catholics were going to hell, too. <laughs> right. But, you know, the one sort of sliver of that faith that just happens to be the one that's that, that God likes the most mm-hmm. just seemed a little too lucky to me. 
And, you know, it occurred to me that like the other people in, in other religions probably feel the same way about mm-hmm. their faith. And not only that, but the people who feel that way about their faith are probably the jerks. <laughs> you know, so maybe one is like, well, am I one of the jerks? Am I one of the, the jerks for Christ? Uh, the same way, you know, like Al Qaeda might be the you know the jerks for Islam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you were in high school, that's when you stepped back and sort of saw the environment that you were in in that new light. Yeah, you just learn more about the world. The more you mm. learn how much bigger the world is than the little incubator of faith that you grew up in. The, the harder it becomes to sort of universalize your belief into something that works for everybody or that everybody should believe. Yeah. And within this sort of Pentecostal environment, Pentecostalism is, is not an area that I am super familiar with. My background is more like Methodist and Wesleyan, um, which is more buttoned down. Than, yeah. Yeah. Than Pentecostal. No, I, uh, you guys, I, I think Pentecostalism and the evangelical movement kind of sprung from that, but it was a much more sort of emotive, uh, sort of, uh, I, I think it was like Methodism adapted for people who burned out on drugs during the sixties, <laughs> you know, it's like sort of Methodism for hippies. Yeah. There, I mean like the Jesus movement and a, and a lot of the, exactly. Like, yeah. There's Jesus people here in Chicago where I am like still today, there's a commune like a couple miles from where I live. Yeah. And um, we weren't like that. I mean, yeah. I, I grew up in it. My mom grew up in it. So it wasn't like, my parents were, you know, these these um, crunchy hippies that yeah. uh, burned out and decided to, you know, join a church. Mm-hmm. It, it was more kind of like those were the people that this faith attracted because it was very sort of emotionally based. It was uh, a way to sort of replace the alcohol or, you know, the 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 LSD. It was a, a cheap way to replace the acid that they were used to. Gotcha. So within that tradition, what was the sort of approach to the Bible? Uh, was it seen in the the way that a lot of evangelical uh, or fundamentalist type churches view it, which is sort of it's the inerrant word, word of God? Yes, it was 100 percent literal, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, you mentioned my book, God is Disappointed in You. One of the things I quickly realized when I, I wrote that book is that. The more literal you take the Bible, the less you know about it, <laughs> because it's impossible to interpret it literally. I won't try to disabuse anyone of their faith because I feel like someone's faith is like a form of self-medication. Mm. It gives them what they need out of the world. Mm-hmm. But I will. But if anybody thinks that the Bible is the literal word of God and tries to like impose that interpretation upon others, I will not hesitate but to burst that bubble for them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's fair. <laughs> yeah, that's that's just for the good of the planet. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of someone who lived inside that bubble, you know that it's it's a hard one to have popped, but it it's necessary <laughs> in in a lot of ways. So, what was that sort of like for you? For some people, that is not the easiest sort of thing to reconcile: changing opinion on the Bible. Uh, you know, a lot of times that's, that's really painful. Like I, I went to college to be a pastor and then I started studying the Bible in Greek. And then I realized, oh shit, I thought this was like perfect. And it's definitely not. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of you know, it's, it, that's one of the reasons why it's so impossible to, to take it literally because it is, was originally written in Greek. And so that, that I mean, there's translations involved. And if you take the translations literally, then suddenly it makes you know no sense. Like, mm-hmm. for example, the uh, the Greeks had no word for for homosexual. To them, that would be like us having a word for someone who only eats chicken. Mm-hmm. It's it's like no. You, you, sometimes you feel like chicken. Sometimes you feel like steak. Sometimes you feel like shrimp. That's the way the Greeks sort of approach sexuality. It's like, what do you mean? You know, somebody who only likes someone of the opposite sex, or what do you mean somebody who only likes someone of the same of of the same sex? That makes no difference. That makes no sense. Your sexuality is whatever you feel like at that time. So they didn't have a word for homosexual. So uh, when Paul was writing about homosexuality in Greek for you know um, imposing Judeo-Christian values on on the Greek language, he had to actually come up with a neologism to describe this activity. And what he came up with was a word arsenokoitai, which literally translates to man liar, which means that if you believe in a literal translation of the Bible. 
you are you believe that Paul is not only condemning homosexual men, but you believe that he is literally condemning heterosexual women mm. who are also man liars. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's it's like once you begin really studying the Bible, the sort of literalism just crumbles beneath your feet. <laughs> and um, and yeah, so I can see what I mean, to me, the, the real question is how anybody comes out of a seminary or a uh, any sort of Bible college still really believing in the Bible as the uh, fundamental inerrant word of God and not as, as I see it, people struggling with the question of what God expects from them here on earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it being a collection of a culture wrestling with that over 1500 years. <laughs> yeah. And to me, that's, that's, you know, a thousand times more profound and mm -hmm. more valuable to think of it that way. It's like, Oh, these are people struggling with the deepest, most interior question of their lives. Mm -hmm. uh, not just like some, some owner's manual that they found on the side of the road that was <laughs> written by, uh, you know, a God who then disappeared. Yeah. So, so let's talk about your, your book a little bit, your, your book, God is disappointed in you. Cause you, uh, it's this retelling of the Bible in a sort of sarcastic, sardonic uh, way, but you, you also work in like some really uh, genuine and also profound things to say in, in the way you retell the Bible. How did you start to develop that? And what was the genesis of, of that particular project? Well, it was really trying to explain the Bible to uh, friends who didn't have a, a Christian upbringing, you mm. know, you know, basically at yeah, bars. So this <laughs> is how you would explain the book of Job to somebody at a bar. This is how you would explain <laughs> the creation story to someone at a bar. So I, I basically just, that was the central concept. It's like, this is the Bible explained to somebody as you would at a bar. <laughs> and I, and I think that I've, since then I've kind of developed the rule that you don't really understand anything unless you can explain it to somebody in a bar. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Some of the passages that stick out to me was like, you say that Jacob wrestled angel and was renamed Israel and Israel today is the only country named after a wrestler. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny when you think about it, like that's a name that stuck. And, and, but to me it's, it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a funny name, but uh, at the same time, this is like kind of where we should go back to being one who wrestles with God. Mm -hmm. the evangelicals I think go wrong because they, they think they, they're done wrestling with God. Like, mm. no, no, we get God. No, we understand exactly what God wants from us. And we uh, we know because we have this this Bible, which is the 100% literal and not open to interpretation word of God. It's like, no, it, the reason why Israel went on to found a great nation and, and the reason why he created a faith that was meaningful to so many millions of people afterward was precisely because he wrestled with God. He fought against what God, what, what God actually wanted mm -hmm. and ultimately came to an agreement with him. That's what we need to be doing in our, I think, our own lives, whatever our religion. Mm -hmm. It needs to be the product of interior struggle, not the product of like sort of smug arrogance thinking because we were raised in this faith or because, you know, we, we have this book that we believe in that we have all the answers. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So when you were writing this book, what was your thinking about how to retell the Bible from just telling someone in, in a bar in a, in a sort of relaxed way? It, when you were writing the book, what was your approach to different to different sections or different types of, uh, you know, because there's all these different genres even in the Bible. So there's all the early histories and then there's the law, uh, there's yeah. poetry, um, there's all the prophets. Um, what was the writing process like for you? It's, you know, sort of like building a, a railroad in that, you know, some places are very flat and even. It's very easy to lay down the tracks because you're just telling a straightforward, retelling mm -hmm. a straightforward history. And then other places are you, you've got to like use dynamite to blast through a mountain. Uh, you know, books like the Book of Revelation, which reads like, a, you know, a horrible fever dream. <laughs> yeah. Or, or the Book of Psalms, which is 150 chapters of poetry, basically songs. Those are much more difficult to condense than, say, you know, First and Second Kings, or, mm -hmm. or even the Gospels, which tell a relatively straightforward narrative. So, yeah, the process shifted, changed from book to book, depending upon what I was doing. 
one problem I ran into when I was reading the Bible, doing my research, is that the Bible doesn't include a lot of historical context it needs to understand itself. Right. For ancient readers, this probably wasn't a problem because, you know, all of a sudden Habakkuk is, you know, screaming about the Assyrians. If you were alive at the time he was writing, you would know what the Assyrians had done. You would be familiar with you would you wouldn't need someone explaining to you. It'd be like if you were a reader, like a reader today wouldn't have to have someone explain to them what nine eleven was. Right. It's like you yeah. could just write an essay about nine eleven and everyone instantly know what you're talking about. But two thousand years from now, if uh, the essay didn't actually explain what nine eleven was or what happened or the events leading up to it, uh, you would be lost. You and I think that's the the problem with the people reading the Bible without the historical context needed mm-hmm. to understand it is that they turn the page and all of a sudden somebody's yelling at the Assyrians. They think they understand it, but they have no idea what is actually being said or what's going on because it lacks the historical context. Right. So I tried to bake a lot of that back into the Bible. Like I, I would, I would have passages, even though technically they aren't included in the Bible where I would explain the, the historical context or why this book was, written the way it was. And in fact, that's sort of the central question I tried to ask myself with each of the books I was condensing is, is like, well, why does this book exist? What was it that the, the author really wanted to say? And I would try to condense it down to that essential message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that comes across. You have a very good economy of language in both of your books as far as just being able to communicate a lot of things in not very many words. And so hearing hearing you say that the idea is you're trying to summarize this for someone in a bar, in retrospect, having read your read your books, that makes a lot of sense in, in how it's written. And really in that way that feels like a summary if you've read the Bible before. But if you haven't, you know, it, it gives you the, the highlights and it, your sort of commentary uh, throughout is is really, really great. Um, I'm thumbing through because I was sort of surprised reading through the New Testament sections that you even made Paul sort of palatable. <laughs> For a lot of people, Paul is not not a great read. And one of the things you say, though, is like, let's be honest, what we're asking people to believe doesn't make a whole lot of sense. <laughs> All we can really do is tell them about Christ and hope they bite, which is more straightforward than a lot of uh, modern translations of Paul. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the things I actually kind of admire about Paul is that he was honest about, I mean, I think because he lived not surrounded by people who agreed with him that he went out into like the, the Hellenized world and he understood how, how crazy uh, the story of Christ sounded to somebody who was more interested in like sort of platonic argument or Aristotelian logic he understood how, how crazy this would sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he was very open about that when talking with other Christians. He basically said, and these are his words, uh, you are called upon not to be you know, debaters or philosophers, but to be fools for Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be somebody who believes this in spite of themselves. And the, our job is really to find the people who are willing to believe this despite the fact it doesn't make any sense to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other sort of element of your book that I appreciate is that it has this element of irreverence that strikes you, but at the same time, it's there in the story. And I I feel like a lot of times if you come from an evangelical background, you're sort of trained to not see that part of stories in the Bible. A lot of people act really freaking human in the Bible, but we sort of valorize them into ways that that make them appear just to be these sort of like sterile saints. Yeah. And that's one of the, I think the things that you cheat yourself out of, if you employ this sort of, you know, 100% literal inerrant sort of non-contradictory version of the Bible in your mind is that you cheat yourself of a lot of that humanity, a lot Mm -hmm. of that struggle that people go through. I mean, the new Testament, when you read it, and when you read it with the understanding the historical context that was going on between, you know, the, the church in Jerusalem and then the Paul's churches, you know, up, up in the, the um, Hellenistic world, mm-hmm. a lot of it is is about James and Paul talking smack about each other. Right. Like yeah. accusing each other, basically, you know, Paul accusing James of being old fashioned and not understanding that they are creating a new religion. And James basically accusing 
Paul of being, you know, uh, a pagan who is abandoning Judaism and, and turning Christ's teachings into something that Christ never intended. And how can mm. you argue with somebody who was the brother of Christ? So mm. I think I know what he thought, you know, I, <laughs> I shared a, a bunk bed with him for 18 years. Right. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. really this is the sort of central conflict that informs the new Testament. And it's mm. a lot more interesting and a lot more, it gives you a lot deeper understanding of Christianity when you see it that way than when, if you just imagine that they're, they somehow all got along and agreed 100% on everything, which they clearly did not. Right. I didn't know any of that sort of aspect of it until years later when I read Reza Aslan's book, Zealot. He talks about that aspect between Paul and James, and it was fascinating. Yeah. And James was the one who was sort of like the uh, the presumptive favorite. He was the one that like people sort of respected and thought would carry on the uh, the message of Christ. And Paul was some wacko like out in the middle of nowhere just writing letters to people, yeah. Uh, whereas James had all the gravitas. It wasn't until the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem that it, with it, the church that James started and James himself, that Paul kind of became the, the torchbearer for Christianity. Mm. Mm -hmm. If they had killed Paul instead of James, Christianity would be extremely different today. Right. I mean, they did eventually kill Paul, but not until <laughs> much. You know. Right. But that would definitely be a very different alternate history. That in uh, Paul's version of Christianity was much more palatable to the Gentile world because mm -hmm. he didn't have to get circumcised for one thing, which was a huge, you know, sort of recruitment barrier. Right. Especially if you're an adult male. Yeah. And, you know, and he made it so that this could actually become a global religion, not just like sort of a sect within Judaism. Mm hmm. Let's talk a little bit, too, about your your second book in, in that series, which is called Apocrypha Now. And you actually tackle the apocryphal texts, both within Judaism and Christianity. So what drew, what drew you to wanting to do uh, that project and, and apply this same sort of approach to those texts? Well, when I was researching God is Disappointing You, I was reading a lot of sort of extra canonical texts to get myself, you know, context and to understand what a lot of the, the canonical books were about, because they refer to these non-canonical books a lot in the Bible. Like, for example, Isaiah tells the story of Satan or then Lucifer, like waging, trying to wage a palace coup against God, mm -hmm. about him not wanting to serve God and therefore trying to overthrow him, failing and then being cast down to earth. That story appears nowhere in Genesis. That only appears in the Bible in, uh, in Isaiah. So he's not referring to the Bible when he's telling the story. He, he didn't make it up. He obviously had familiarity with the, uh, the oral Torah of, mm -hmm. the, of the Jewish faith. Mm -hmm. And so what we would now call the Midrash, the, the big body of Jewish folk beliefs and oral traditions mm -hmm. that informed the written Torah. And it's hard to really say that you understand the Bible without also understanding the the traditions and the, the, that it came from. And, you know, another example is, you know, Jesus himself uh, has a story where he casts the demons out of a woman and he says, behold, one greater than Solomon is here, which kind of, you know, seems weird. Why, you know, why Solomon? Why would you compare yourself to Solomon, you know, after ca casting out a bunch of demons? Because Solomon is known to people in the Bible as, you know, um, either a king of Israel, or also just like a, someone who wrote a lot of really cool pop proverbs. Mm -hmm. But there is in the Jewish tradition a book called the uh, the Testament of Solomon, which describes his basically his career as an exorcist. Hmm. And uh, there's a whole book about him basically being granted this magic ring by God that allowed him to capture the souls of demons, and he would go around and capture demons. And according to this book, that's how he built the the temple. Oh, so wow. He uh, enslaved all this demonic labor and forced them <laughs> to do the really hard work of building the, the temple. And But that's something that we don't really have in the Christian tradition. But it's obvious from the Christian tradition and the Bibles and the canonical Bible that Christ knew this story, that this is what he was reading. So and in doing this research, I thought, wow, there's a real, not only is this necessary for understanding the Bible, but there's just some really great stories in here that it's mm -hmm. a shame that more people don't know. The whole tradition about uh, Peter being crucified upside down, 
opposed to being crucified, right, set up like Christ, right. that doesn't come from the Bible either. That also comes from the the Acts of Peter, which is mm-hmm. a Gnostic gospel, which was banned in the third century or the fourth century AD, and was supposedly destroyed. But uh, luckily, uh, some people had enough foresight to hide a lot of these heretical Gnostic texts mm-hmm. at a site called Nagamati, and they discovered them in 1945. So it's it's basically en- enough to sort of double or triple the New Testament uh, was found, you know, w- w- was utterly missing until 1945. Mm. And so I thought, how can I not tell? How can I tell the story of the early Christians and not include what most of the early Christians were writing or thinking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. To your point, like there are some great stories, like in the the sort of apocryphal stories about Jesus as a kid being a real jerk, like just sort yeah. of tormenting his his fellow kids and his parents and his other people's parents and his Which, teachers. Again, is much more gratifying than the idea of Jesus just sort of like you know coming out like a like a holy card, right? And sort of being perfect from day one is like, could you imagine what that would be like to? have the powers of God and yet the sort of mind of a child and and what it would take to sort of like show, you know, learn the (laughs) discipline to control that and become, you know, a good shepherd. Right. It's like, to me, that's much more profound and much more sympathizing and humanizing to Jesus than the idea that he was just this baby who was born morally and pure and perfect in every way. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. everybody just breaking in here to again let you know there are a couple of ways to support the show first you can do that by just letting some folks know about the show in person or online second you can rate and review the show over on apple podcasts that is still the place to leave your reviews for podcasts and it's a big help to us podcasters and i know i just said a couple but here's a third you can also Support the show via Patreon over at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. Again, I hope you're enjoying this episode, and we'll get right back to it now. So after having written these these books, you actually get a position writing for DC Comics. So you start writing for DC. Was it your first gig doing or your first uh, job for DC doing the Flintstones? Is that right? No, no. The, the first thing I did for DC and actually the first comic book I wrote for anyone was uh, was a comic book called Prez. Oh, okay. So Prez came first. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Prez uh, was the first comic book i got from dc it was uh you know in 2015 and so they were thinking oh well we want to someone had the idea to bring back the prez comic book which i don't know if you know your readers this might be too obscure for most people to know about but there was a a, a comic book that ran for about four issues in 1973 74 created by joe simon who also created captain america Mm -hmm. uh, about this teenager who becomes president and it was because it was the early 70s you know the uh, 25th Amendment had just passed, giving 18-year-olds the right to vote. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of this sort of hippie fear at the time, like, <laughs> oh, great, now that we've gotten 18-year-olds the, the right to vote, they're going to be taking over the country, they're going to, you know, be putting hippies into office, and mm. they're going to, you know, there's going to be like a like a, a Native American guy who's in charge of the FBI, you know, and I think <laughs> a lot of it was like, 
half of it was like their attempt to sort of come up with a comic book that the kids would really like, sort mm-hmm. of their easy writer. But half of it was also sort of like informed by the sort of subconscious fear yeah, that, that the hippies were going to take over everything. That tends to boil out in in comics just because they can be produced so fast. I feel like like social anxiety. <laughs> yeah, that's what a lot of them really express. Well, yeah. is the sort of angst, the, right? The malaise of the zeitgeist. Yeah, Prez made this weird sort of cameo in a Sandman story, um, in Neil Gaiman's yeah. Sandman, and that was where I didn't even realize that it was another character. And I think that was like Neil Gaiman, like uh, just trying to be obscurantist, like, yeah, oh, I'm going to tell the story about Prez and nobody will know who he is. But, you know, there's this character that actually, you know, uh, was part of the, the, you know, DC universe in 1973. Hmm. So, yeah, they basically hired me to to reboot it in the run up to the 2016 election because they thought it'd be a good time to sort of reboot this obscure comic book. Mm hmm. So I uh, I did it. I changed it to um, being set in the near future, you know, like about 20 years from now. And it's the first election decided by Twitter. <laughs> uh, you can vote on Twitter. And this girl named Beth Ross wins the election and becomes president because she goes viral at just the right time. Uh, <laughs> and so it, it's it's really sort of a a parody of instant celebrity and of like politics in the 21st century. That, that, uh, that feels eerily accurate <laughs> in yeah. light of how 2016 happened. <laughs> yeah, right. Now, I guess now it would be the second election decided by Twitter. <laughs> yes. Yes. But uh, but yeah, so that that was my first comic book, and it only ran for about six issues. Yeah. That was a good comic book, too. I mean, you you sort of tackle different things, like, within the sense of, and like, welfare. Welfare's not the right term, but but, like, sort of food is subsidized by like essentially like taco bell just delivering yeah, drones. taco drone taco drone that's right yeah <laughs> taco delivering drones that yeah. um and basically yeah the, the the um the welfare system the food food stamp program is taken over by taco bell basically mm. and the price you pay for getting this free food from taco drone is constant surveillance because the drones are always <laughs> keeping an eye on you. And also um, you have to then become a living advertisement for Taco Drone. It's like they give you uh, quote-unquote funware. So you know, these brightly colored sort of purple and orange uh, body suits advertising Taco Drone that you must wear at all times now because you're accepting this free food. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that also feels eerie. I hope that's not prophetic. It, it very well can turn out to be. But yeah, it was just about like, you know, the, the privatization of our, our institutions, the privatization of our empathy for other human beings and about how everything is becoming, you know, all human relationships are being reduced to their transactionality. Mm. That's kind mm. of what I was just trying to capture with that image. Yeah. Yeah. So you can't even like, it'd be like, you know, if to go back to religion, if Christ were to give people loaves and fishes, but then made them take like a, a keychain, like a, like a. <laughs> Christ keychain or, you know, told everyone <laughs> that they, they had to get baptized first. <laughs> it sounds like Samaritan's purse, but that's just another story. The next thing that you write then after this, I had the chronology wrong, uh, is then you, you work on the Flintstone series. That's right. Okay. Within the context of this, this licensed property, it's a Hannah Barbera property that DC has access to. And, you know, people know the Flintstones. It's part of our background. You know, uh, if someone was writing an essay, talk about like making cultural references, as we were talking about earlier, Flintstones is one that, thing that that most people know. But you use this commonly known property to sort of explore these these big questions about civilization, really. And that the way you set it up is that like Bedrock is really the first first go at like human civilization. How did you develop that idea? And, and I mean, I, I just felt like that was very successfully executed and a, a great way to, to examine a lot of these big questions. How did you start to develop that? Well, um, they gave me the Flintstones, I think, cause they felt bad about Prez being canceled. Um, and, but they, I know they, that, that DC really liked Prez, but it didn't sell very well. So they, they had to cancel it. So they offered mm-hmm. me the Flintstones instead. And yeah, I was never really a big fan of the Flintstones. I, to this day, I, I don't think you know, I have a hard time getting through a single episode of it. 
But I thought to myself, well, if they give me a property to write, the, as long as it can allows me to, to write about things that I actually care about, mm-hmm. then, then what does it matter if mm-hmm. you know, I'm a big fan or not? And so that's kind of the way I approached the Flintstones. It's like, well, what do I care about in relation to the Flintstones? And what I cared about was, you know, the fundamental flaws of civilization, like where human civilization went wrong, the ways in which our institutions have failed us, and, uh, you know, the way in which we fail each other by mm-hmm. dehumanizing each other. And so that's kind of what the Flintstones became about, about how people back then were easily duped into falling for the things that we are still falling for today because they had no experience with civilization before. Mm-hmm. And in a way, they're kind of more admirable than we are because they have an excuse. Uh, this is all very new to them. Right. Yeah, different issues are sort are sort of address different things. Like there's an there's one issue. It's a twelve issue run, and I recommend anyone listening pick up the the two volumes of it because they're great. Um, one issue will do something like tackling sort of consumerism, uh, and like malls are sort of invented. Yeah, not only malls, but just stuff. Right, stuff. Like, yeah, there's like a newscast about this crazy new trend of uh, owning physical objects. You know? Right. Yeah. And it just you know, people go nuts for it. It's like I can I can go into this place and they will sell me a hat. <laughs> I don't have to make my own hat. It's glorious. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so one of the characters that obviously I think a lot about religion and its impact on society, and one of my favorite through lines is the proto-pastor character that you have he's really given a go at monotheism like that's his that's his thing uh yeah the, the god is called gerald and really trying to get people to to listen to him really <laughs> tell me a little bit about that character and how how that was developed too well, he starts as an animist priest, you know, because like the humans started as, as animists worshiping the forces of nature because they were they seem mysterious to us. They seem like they knew what they were doing. Uh, and in fact, you know, there's when he starts like they worship this bird god named Morp. And because Morp is the one they were hunter gatherers, Morp would be the one they would follow, you know, south for the, the winter and north again for the the summer morp would be the one that would show them where watering holes were because they just follow morp and where it went wherever he landed and he would land where there was water so morp this animal god was incredibly important to them when they were hunter gatherers living with the same sort of struggles in nature that the morp was living but then when they settled down and began and founded a city and you know settled down and had civilization, mm-hmm. animals became a lot less mysterious. They became livestock. They became pets, mm-hmm. or they became, in the case of the Flintstones, appliances. Right. You know, so you, you feel kind of silly when you realize that you're you're actually the the bird you're worshiping is actually the record player, <laughs> right? Or yeah. the the elephant that you are worshiping is the vacuum cleaner. Mm-hmm. It's like, why am I worshiping a vacuum cleaner? So the, the solution to this quandary created by civilization is to abandon animism and begin worshiping an invisible God that cannot be commodified. Mm-hmm. And that is Gerald. And his symbol is the empty throne. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts is of that sort of storyline of Fred and Wilma giving a go at uh, monotheism is when they actually go in one issue on a marriage retreat and they are seen as the sort of radicals of their time because monogamy had just been invented and there are signs of protesters that say things like uh, God hates dads and like just go (laughs) and then like some old couple decries them and says just go back to the sex cave you know Right, which is where you know we we spent most of our human existence you know, <laughs> right. in the sex cave. <laughs> right. So, um, and then there's a section where Fred gives this really impassioned defense of this couple, Adam and Steve. He just delivers this really, really wonderful response because the pastor doesn't want to acknowledge this gay couple. This is a sort of thing that Christianity in the West continues to struggle with like even this week as as we're talking the united methodist church is probably on the verge of a split over the issue of affirming lgbtq people 
I'd love to hear just about how you how you developed that particular story and why you put that moment in because I, that one really really resonated with me and was just such a great scene to have incorporated into this popular comic book about the Flintstones. Well, thanks. Yeah, I I really wanted to be a reaction to, you know, people sort of trying to create, you know, cast their prejudice against um, LGBTQ people as being just merely being in favor of traditional marriage. Like, you know, it's Coke or Pepsi and I just happen to prefer Pepsi, Mm. you know, when in fact, you know, it's like if you prefer Pepsi, that doesn't mean you have to go, you have to legally bar anyone else from drinking Coke, you know, Mm -hmm. but, but for some reason, the advocates of quote unquote traditional marriage feel, feel just that way that in order to support traditional marriage, you have to like bar LGBTQ people from, from marrying who they want to, which mm-hmm. is not just, you know, a question of stopping people from marrying each other, but it has very real ramifications in every other facet of life because then they can't adopt kids. They, they can't, they don't even have the right to be with their significant other when they are dying in a hospital. So mm-hmm. it's not just a question of marriage. It's really about, do you have even have rights to be around the people you love? And it's much more fundamental than they make it out, make it, out to be. Mm-hmm. But, you know, my, my sort of historic problem with that approach, other than the fact that it's, you know, unfair and I think dehumanizing is, is that, you know, it's like, well, traditional marriage doesn't really exist because mm-hmm. uh, marriage is itself a brand new institution. It really only has existed in, you know, maybe within the last eight to 10,000 years and we as a species have been around on the planet for about a quarter of a million. Mm-hmm. So it's, it is itself a brand new thing as, in, in human institu- as human institutions go. So I thought, well, it'd be cool to like talk about this, uh, you know, at the beginning of marriage when this was itself being treated like gay marriage because it was such a brand new institution and you're changing everything and all the same arguments that people are making against same sex marriage now could have been applied against, you know, opposite, you know, any sort of marriage back then Mm -hmm. and thereby, you know, reducing how ridiculous these arguments. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And it's very, very effective. It's one of my favorite parts of your series. Thanks. Yeah. it It was a very elegant metaphor uh, that, that presented itself. I'm amazed that like nobody's kind of like been making these arguments before. Right. Yeah. You sort of explore, uh, issues in regards to LGBTQ acceptance even further in your, uh, run on Snagglepuss, which is carries on this Hanna-Barbera license with DC, but you reimagine Snagglepuss as this closeted playwright in the McCarthy era. Uh, so you took the Flintstones and made Fred Flintstone and the other characters in Bedrock into these extremely thoughtful characters that were examining civilization and its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, what was the thought and the pitch for doing something similar with something like Snagglepuss? Well, the funny thing about Snagglepuss was I, I originally wasn't even – didn't even realize that I was pinching it as a comic. I was just writing things on Facebook, little conversations. <laughs> Seriously, I was just writing little conversations between Snagglepuss and Huckleberry Hound as though they were, you know, Southern Gothic playwrights, you know, sort of <laughs> talking this very sort of purple prose to each other. And my editor, Marie, uh, who happens, you know, also to be a, a Facebook friend, just emailed me out of the blue and said, by the way, uh, if you want to do your Snagglepuss comic, I've, I, I've got a green lit. So I, I was like, <laughs> That's well, okay. So then I had to actually come up with a Snagglepuss comic, but I just thought I would kind of follow that similar, that same sort of story. And, you know, with Snagglepuss, it was, it's like, well, what are the two things we know about Snagglepuss? It's like, well, one is that he's a gay icon. And two is that he has a background in theater. Because all of his, you know, his, both his catchphrases are theater references. Mm-hmm. Exit stage left is obviously a theater stage direction, mm-hmm. and Heaven's to Murgatroyd is a is a reference to I think a Gilbert and Sullivan mm-hmm. musical. So I thought, well, why would what would have happened to force him to go from the stage to uh, cartoons in 1959? Mm. And that's when the whole story of him, like, sort of 
running afoul of the lavender scare and, you know, the house on American activities in the 1950s just sort of like suggested itself. <laughs> That's great. Another great series that, that sort of, uh, again, examines social norms and the ways in which people just by existing deviate from them. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. I do want to, to pivot though and, and talk a little bit about an upcoming work that you have, which really goes again back to these issues of religion. This uh, new book you're working on, new, another comic book called Second Coming. So what's that book about? It, the short story is it's about um, Jesus Christ coming back to earth and uh, sharing a two-bedroom apartment with a superhero. <laughs> the idea being that God, when he originally came down to earth, God thought he was going to be more like like him, like projecting power you know, smiting the wicked, mm-hmm. sort of ruling with strength. And when Jesus did not, it was subsequently crucified. God was horrified by that. So he sent him back down to learn from the superhero the way to rule the earth and the human race with a sort of an iron fist. <laughs> but what ends up happening is kind of the opposite. The superhero sort of like ends up learning just how limited you know, the ability to like throw someone through a plate glass window or, you know, drop kick somebody into the next county, how really <laughs> how limited that is in terms of solving human problems. Mm. And that Christ's approach of like empathy and forgiveness and healing is actually much more effective, even <laughs> though it might mean that you get crucified once in a while. <laughs> that is a, a really interesting scenario to put a Christ figure into. Yeah, it's it's part deconstruction of superhero comics and also part deconstruction of Christianity. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, there is a lot of sense of superheroes as modern deities. You know, there's this – and I think the the book Super Gods, Grant Morrison makes direct parallels between like the Big Seven and uh, Justice League to Greek gods, you know? Well, and I think that, you know, frankly, uh, Superman or, you know, superheroes are much more natural gods for say, like modern evangelicals than, than Christ Mm, because mm -hmm. they, they respect power. They, um, want to him to be the mascot for an empire. Mm -hmm. Uh, whereas Christ was really more, much more about, uh, subverting the empire, you know? Right. The, uh, the the problems, I think, really started when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire mm-hmm. because, you know, Christ was all about, like, dropping out, not playing by the rules of people who want to live by fear and, and kill others. And the Romans were much more about ruling by fear and killing others. You know, right. so it was a very unnatural fit to make this guy who's trying to get people to live without fear or greed and make him – the mascot for an empire that was basically run by fear and greed. Mm, yeah. And so it created these, you know, necessitated these intellectual gymnastics that have sort of, I think, tainted Christianity to this day and the sort of prosperity doctrine and then, you know, the name it and claim it churches mm-hmm. that you see that are common in the United States today are sort of the natural outgrowth of that, this sort of like attempt to create God in our own image. Yeah. Do you think clearly, I mean, there, there are other, other comic book properties, there was like Punk Rock Jesus, which sort of a- addressed these things head on as far as with the Christ figure and, and everything. Is that something that as an artist or in this sort of marketplace, something you're concerned about? I mean, to me, I think it's a fin- it's a really compelling idea and it's one that I, I look forward to reading. You know, this this idea of com- directly comparing these these two different these two different approaches to both power and, and divinity. Cause it, it cause superheroes have this uh, representation of the divine and of the superhuman that is just more palatable in pop culture than something yeah. that's directly religious. Well, and I think that the problem with superheroes is this sort of embedded idea that the only thing that will save the world is if the good guys are even better at violence than, you know, the villains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's sort of the embedded ideology in all superhero comics. Right. And I think in the 21st century, that's um, on a on a social level, inherently suicidal. Mm. That, that thinking that um, 
that all the world's problems are solved by violence and we just need to make sure that we're better than everyone else at it. Uh, you know, in a global thermonuclear age with dwindling resources and, you know, we will either find a way to feed the masses and, you know, help people survive as a species Mm -hmm. or we will die all competing for the last can of spam. Mm -hmm. And I think that idea that like the solution is just to be better at using physical force than everyone else that the superheroes usually present Mm -hmm. will lead to the latter scenario where if, if that becomes our guide for ethical and moral behavior, we will all die because of it. And so I wanted somebody to propose sort of an alternative. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. Cause I mean, all of the superhero stories, the only part in which there's rebuilding is in, I, I always butcher this word, but the denouement, uh, you know, it's in those moments after the battle's done, <laughs> like this yeah. horrific battle. And that comes to mind, like, Mark Wade's like Kingdom Come, you know, where Batman turns his costume from black to white and he like sort of becomes a sort of a nurse character instead of a the guy that beats up mentally ill people. The danger of like superheroes kind of becoming like the new gods is that, yeah, we sort of forgotten the teachings of Christ and have adopted professional wrestling as our moral <laughs> Yeah, it was moral compass. Oh, man. I can't picture Vince McMahon in a pantheon. That, that's upsetting. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's what part of the, you know, the, the, the comic's largely about, about how we've sort of forgotten what Christ really brought to the earth, which is a moral alternative to that approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So do you have a, a, a scope in mind? Or do you have, like, an ongoing series in mind? Or is this something that, that you have, like, a a self-contained story that you that you'd like to tell in this in this frame. I really don't want to ever do an ongoing series. I think they should all be self-contained because I I want them to end while they're still good, while mm-hmm. they're still relevant. Yeah. To have an endpoint in mind when I start. So, but I think that this one ideally would run for about 18 issues. Okay. I'm signed for 6, well I'm not signed for any right now, but I had originally signed with Vertigo for 6 issues. Mm-hmm. And that's how many I've got written right now, but I would like to eventually do 18. Yeah, that's a that's a good uh what's the industry term maxi series? Yeah. Awesome. I agree generally those those sort of maxi series are much more enjoyable as a, as a reader. Like the things we've sort of talked about right now, like the superhero stuff is is good. It's nice to read, but usually it's sort of like the creator runs or what are defined. The ones that are defined are usually very more rewarding overall. It's interesting to hear that uh, from from the creator's pr- perspective too. Yeah, I think that the the what you want when you read something is what's unique about the person writing it, and drawing mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. What you want is their vision and not like uh, something that is that is reminiscent of everything else you've written. Mm-hmm. What you read for is what's unique about it, and so I I I, I think that it's okay to do something that's challenging or you know maybe even a little off putting. Because ultimately, that's what's going to stay with people. Right. Yeah. The uniqueness of it. Yeah. And who is your your artist uh, partner in in this particular book? Uh, Richard Pace. Okay. And have you worked with with him before? No. This is our okay. first project together. Awesome. Great. Yeah, I'm I'm super excited to see that come to light and uh, and and read your your take on that. Just because it is a very sort of big dichotomy that especially relative to the ideas of like strength and power and how you how you use those superheroes yeah they're all about might makes right in a lot of ways so bringing that up against <laughs> jesus being yeah, they're much roommate. more of an old testament version of of power that like mm. oh we better do what these people say because uh not because their ideas are good or because what they say is any good but just because they could burn us into a cinder if we do not mm-hmm uh, yeah. Which is like sort of like the most base regressive sort of moral mm. idea in the world. Yeah. The idea that we still sort of celebrate this or try to come up with new tweaks to make it seem edgy or fashionable, I think really speaks more to our lack of imagination mm. and also the, our failure to create new possibilities that will allow the human race to survive the 21st century. Mm. Is that something you see as a powerful thing that fiction allows us to do is imagine those scenarios? 
Yeah, and in particular comic books because they're they're all thought experiments. Mm-hmm. And if you aren't thinking about you know the, the the big issues of our day and you know human survival, then why are you using a medium like this that's so so good at like making thought experiments accessible to people? Mm. They don't have to invest a yeah. lot of time reading it. They go quickly. You have the whole visual component. So you can exploit things in a vision or a visual metaphor mm-hmm. much more easily than if you were writing a prose book. And it's more likely to be read by children who are or, you know, at least, you know, young people who are going to be, you know, at, the, at a stage where you're actually influencing their, mm-hmm. them intellectually and not like some 50 year old, you know, dude who has already decided he's right about everything. Mm. Yeah. And so given you know all these factors, and you're writing a comic book. Why wouldn't you use it to sort of like help, you know, save the human race or help? you know, influence the future. Right. Yeah. Well, do you have a, is I actually, I know you, you can't really talk to talk in regards to timelines or anything, uh, but no, what, my, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I don't, we don't have a new publisher for, for it yet because, uh, uh, vertigo, uh, dropped it, canceled the, the orders. So we're looking for a new publisher. Uh, but my hope is that it will be out relatively soon. Great. Awesome. Well, I will sort of update update things relative to that when when that's available. But overall, I've I've really enjoyed our conversation, and I'm really happy to to let people know about some of your other work. Where can people find find you online, Mark? Uh, and where can they find your your books? And um, you're also writing uh, Red Sonia right now. Is that right? So that's that's correct. That's yeah, I'm writing on. Red Sonia, and I just finished up a run on the Lone Ranger mm-hmm. about the, the old West. It's actually a story about, um, the advent of barbed wire, which uh-huh. I thought was really cool because it, it utterly changed how everything worked in the old West. So it's a little, one of these little things that has a huge impact. So mm. yeah, I'm doing that. I'm also doing a wonder twins comic, uh, for DC. That's you might right. The wonder twins from the, the old seventies, uh, super friends cartoon. That's right. I read the first issue. It was great. Thanks. Yeah. So, um, the, probably the best way to keep track of me and all I'm doing is on Twitter. I'm on Twitter relentlessly <laughs> and my Twitter address is at Manrus, M-A-N-R-U-S-S. Awesome. And then all those books are available at your local comic book store. Um, or if you have to, um, then Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and talking to me about your work. Yeah, my pleasure. Anytime. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.